Thanks for listening to the Toronto Legends Podcast. I am your host, Andrew Applebaum. My guest today is Kirsten Jones. Kirsten is a former NCAA Division I volleyball player. She is a former executive with a little company you may have heard of called Nike. She is an internationally recognized peak performance and sports parenting coach. She is the host of the Hashtag Raising Athletes podcast and a motivational speaker. And last but certainly not least, Kirsten is also a wife and a mother to three high school and collegiate athletes of her own. Put all those amazing experiences together, and it makes perfect sense that Kirsten has now written a book called Raising Empowered Athletes, a youth sports parenting guide for raising happy, brave, and resilient kids. Published by Triumph Books, it has just launched and is available wherever you like to get your books. It is described by Kirsten as the guide that she had always wanted to read while she was a parent raising three children involved in sports. Welcome, Kirsten, to Toronto Legends. Thank you for joining me. I understand you're currently on your American book tour. Where have we found you today and how are you doing? Thank you so much for having me, Andrew. I just dropped my middle son off at college in Hamilton, New York. Uh, so from L.A. to Hamilton to Buffalo and to, yeah, kicking off the, the tour here in, in Buffalo, New York. All right. I used to live and I lived here for three years. So I'm happy to be home in Buffalo and see some friends. Well, that's great. Well, coming from Southern California, I was going to uh, tell you, you probably don't appreciate the climate out here, but you, you, if you've done Buffalo, you've done your time in that kind of climate. Absolutely. Yes. No, we totally appreciate it. And we had a hurricane coming through the other day too. So it was actually better weather here than it was in LA. So. Absolutely crazy times. It must be incredibly fulfilling to now be a published author. Your book is a real thing. You can hold it in your hands. It's amazing. And it was a seven-year push uh, with many moments of thinking it wasn't going to happen. So yeah, it's it feels really good to be here. What a journey. And do you enjoy the traveling now and meeting people and your readers as you proceed on this book tour? Yeah, the original vision I had about it was I I love the motivational speaking. My passion is connecting with others. And, and that's kind of why I got my life coaching certification was I believe I, I believe all of us have limiting beliefs. We all have things that get in our way. And I think the biggest gift is, and when I see it through the lens of sport, helping parents and their athletes release those limitations and realize so much of what gets in our way is ourselves. And so that's kind of what the whole motivation was, what tools can I provide? And, you know, and a book is a great way to do that. Excellent. Well, let's jump right in. A kid from Montana, you started your college volleyball career at San Diego State before transferring to the College of William & Mary located in historic Williamsburg, Virginia. I have actually been on the William & Mary campus myself. I had a great visit. Please tell us about your college experience, both academically and athletically. My dad was a doctor, and his focus was always academics. And as a child of the 70s and 80s, as most of us were, we played whatever sport was in season. We didn't In Montana, they didn't even have club sports. I actually didn't start playing volleyball till I was a freshman in high school, till I was 15, because they didn't offer it in middle school. Um, but I had played basketball and softball and tennis and skied and all of that. And so when I found volleyball, I was like, wow, something new and different. And I ended up trying out for the junior national team in Colorado Springs and the San Diego State assistant coach was there. And so I ran up to her and said, I want to come to San Diego. I've never been to San Diego. I never met the coach. I never met anybody, but it sounds great. 
And I had only been recruited by the University of Montana to play both basketball and volleyball, but I was ready for a change. And so when I got to San Diego State, I worked my butt off and I was able to get a, a full ride scholarship, but it just wasn't a match with the coach. And then even the academics, now it's like an impossible school to get into. But back then it was very much a party school and it just it wasn't a fit. And so when you know I called home crying for the 23rd time, my dad just said, you know, like, why are you doing this? You don't need to play volleyball. This is not your future. You should just go get a degree. And my older sister had gone to UVA, University of Virginia, and she's like, oh, you should come to UVA or like there's this little school down south. And so I back in the day put together my VHS tape and typed up my little letter and sent it out to a handful of schools. And sure enough, William & Mary answered and I got a message on my answering machine. You need to come to William & Mary. I know exactly who you are and you're going to have an amazing time. And so I feel like I got the best of both in my college experience because athletically, uh, San Diego State at the time was like number 12 in the nation. So it was phenomenal volleyball. I learned a ton. And then when I got to William & Mary, which was also D1 and, and in his conference, we won the conference every year, but it was this great academics. And I walked into a, a group of women who were all valedictorian and salutatorian of their class who are now doctors and lawyers and, you know, sports journalists, and they, they've done amazing things. So to be a part of that type of stimulation, and we are who we surround ourselves with. So getting to be a part of that it was an amazing launching pad for me. Well, it sounds great. And I have to tell you, Kirsten, William & Mary is notable, as you know, the second oldest institution of higher education in the United States. But locally here in Toronto, it is perhaps better known as the school that produced Michael Pinball Clemens. Although at only five foot five, he didn't stick in the NFL, Pinball went on to win three great cups as a player, another four great cups as a coach and executive. This absolutely incredible, unblemished 7-0 record in great cup championship games, all achieved with our hometown Toronto Argonauts, Kirsten, like Michael Pinball Clemens, you are also a member of the William & Mary Athletics Hall of Fame, in your case for volleyball. Have you ever met or interacted with the great Michael Pinball Clemens? And if so, do you have a special secret Hall of Fame handshake? I wish. No, I, I, they've been holding out on me. I have not got to meet Pinball. Like, where has he been hiding? <laughs> you, we absolutely have to get you to Toronto. He's, he's at National Treasure and Toronto's taken him as one of his own. But that's quite an achievement for you to, to be in uh, William Mary's uh, College Athletics Hall of Fame. Thank you. And that was what was super fun about that was it happened, uh, I think it was 2018. And my, my father has now passed, but he was alive. So he got to see that. My, you know, my parents were both there. And then my kids were old enough at the time, like 17, 15 and 12. So while they didn't probably feel like it was that cool, at least thank God they kind of witnessed it. That I, we were trying to explain to them, this just doesn't happen all the time. This will never happen again. Of course, to your kids to see other people actually paying attention to you must have been gratifying. Yes. Yeah. No, it's super fun. And now they're at the ages where even now they're like, oh, mom wrote a book. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. I'm actually getting some props. Validation. <laughs> Total. Yeah. Now, after college, you played some volleyball overseas and then began a 15-year career with the company that famously taught us all to just do it. You have worked for Nike in Sweden, the Netherlands, and at head office in Beaverton, Oregon. How did you end up at Nike? Oh, great story. Um, so I went to Budapest with my Japanese degree, Hajime Mashta Dozeiroshku, and decided I was going to move to Eastern Europe, which my parents thought, okay, 22-year-old brain, what are you doing? But both my twin sister and older sister were living in Budapest. They had been there for a year. 
And so I went there thinking, okay, what's the worst case scenario? I leave. Um, ended up staying for two years, like I said, playing a little bit of volleyball, you know, doing whatever I could to make ends meet with my backpack and my frequent flyer miles. Eventually met the man of my dreams, who happened to be from Eugene, Oregon, of all places. He was over there playing pro basketball. And he was in an Irish pub and he was tall. And so I said, oh, we will be talking. And um, so <laughs> sure enough, as soon as Evan and I started chatting, we said, what's your dream job? And he said, I grew up in Eugene, Oregon. He's like, that's where Nike started. And he goes, we, I, he goes, I really would love to find out um, how we can get a job at Nike. And so it was then that I looked up a family friend from Montana who happened to be the number like 10 guy at Nike at the time, who I knew like since I was three. And called him and said, what do you guys have going on in Eastern Europe? And he said, actually, we've got an office in Vienna, Austria. And so I literally wrote them a letter and the woman, I called the woman and she said, yeah, we're not hiring for a while. And I said, oh, well, you know, I'm going to be in Vienna anyway tomorrow. Lie, lie, lie. Jumped on the train and showed up on the front door, said, you should hire me. <laughs> and three months later, two months later, I was moving to Vienna and started yeah, in 95 in their Eastern European office. So worked for Eastern Europe. Uh, and sports marketing. So I've got to do like all the women's marketing and all the volleyball and all the handball and all of those sports was was super amazing. Going, My first trip was to go to Moscow and the Seska, they needed somebody like the Nike person from Beaverton couldn't get her visa. And um, they said, so they sent me to go out onto the ice in the middle of the Seska Moskva, the Red Army's hockey game, which they said there was about 300 million people watching. And Nike was doing a hockey donation through Bauer. It was before they bought Bauer. And they were they had collected, they'd gone on ESP, partnered with ESPN. So they had an ESPN crew there. And they videoed the whole thing. And they did this huge hockey, used hockey drive. So encouraged kids from all of the United States, like, ship your hockey, hockey equipment. And they sent it to, to Russia. Sergey, what's his name? I'm blanking on his name. Uh, was there to to meet me and I went out on the ice and like had this I'm 24 years old and I'm like on behalf of Nike you know and it was supposedly went out to like all the CIS and it was like wow this is this is going to be a really cool experience well talk about cool experiences I also understand you shared some time with Michael Jordan's running mate Scotty Pippen in Slovenia of all places you've done your research so that was my first project um, was to open a, at the time, Nike was again t collecting things to give away. So they collected old shoes. It was called the Reuse a Shoe Program. And they collected the shoes and they ground them up and they made basketball courts and, and riding stables and playgrounds with them. So in Europe, they collected them, sent them to Germany, ground up the, the shoes, and then they shipped them to Slovenia. And so I would, that was my first project. And Nike was getting this Reuse a Shoe Court built. And then they brought him in. And I remember Elon skis is from there in Slovenia. So like they gave him 11 pairs of skis for all of his, you know, they had this big, you know, to do of, of, Pip, of Pippet. And when he came in, he was like, he was so cool. He was very like, you know, kind. And we did a whole, you know, kickoff. It was, it was very stressful for me as a 24 year old, like not knowing what I was doing, but we just made it up as we went along. On some great life experiences. I want to know if you had any interactions with one of the greatest entrepreneurs ever, Nike founder Phil Knight. A couple times. So I worked in the Mia Hamm building and Phil had offices obviously in John McEnroe, which was the original building, but Mia Hamm was, you know, now it's kind of one of the older buildings as well, but he was on the third floor. So often he would be coming up, you know, in the elevator to the third floor and you'd catch him on the way up. And he was always 
kind and considerate and ask people what they want. And then his grandsons, two of his grandsons, graduated from the daycare center that they have on campus with my oldest son. So they flew Joe Paterno out and he was the, the main speaker because it was the Joe Paterno Center was the daycare center at the day, the time. And so, yeah, I had a couple very small, but um, you know, he's not a close friend, but a, a, an amazing guy and, and always very kind and very welcoming to, to everybody. The whole Nike story is amazing. And I'm going to assume that you have seen the Ben Affleck, Matt Damon movie Air, which dramatized the story by Michael Jordan's game-changing shoe deal. What did you think of the movie? You know, it's funny once you've drunk, drank the Kool-Aid and you know the inside story. So, you know, yes, there was a lot of Hollywood in there. It was a great story, but there's quite a few things that are not factual. Apparently, you know, like Rob Strasser was the one that really did the whole deal. Um, it really wasn't, you know, and the mom really wasn't involved, although Michael really reveres his mother. And apparently, true story, when he went to go produce the movie, he said, you know, unless you use Viola Davis, you can't even talk about my mom. So he had all these. So there was definitely some Hollywood embellishments in there, like the shoe deal. They didn't know that they were going to get fined. They just put the red on the shoe and then they got fined and they went oopsie, which, uh, you know, not a big deal for them. But it was really fun to to go take the trip down memory lane. And because, you know, it's that's such Nike legend. And then I, and I was in HR. So I taught a lot of that stuff around how we started the nuts and bolts and PS 72 and blue ribbon sports and how it all came to be. So it was, it was fun to take the trip, you know, to, to see it all in, in film. And I also want to ask if you had any interactions with Sonny Vaccaro, who was played by Matt Damon in the movie and got most of the credit in the film, at least for citing Michael Jordan. I have not. I was not. I was on the footwear side, so I was in global footwear. My husband actually worked on the basketball side, so he worked. He has some really great Kobe stories and LeBron, and he had some interactions, you know, mild. But um, Nike used to do an event. Actually, they may still do it, but that was his first job was working with um, the international. They did a big hoop summit, they called it, and so Vaccaro would be involved. And in fact, I dropped my son off at Colgate two days ago, and I go into the dinner and. I see this guy and I was like, oh my gosh. And the woman across the table is like, what? I go, this guy is a legend. And the guy goes, no, I'm not. I go, yes, you are. She goes, who is he? He's, she was Dutch. I go, this is PJ Carlissimo. And PJ's son just transferred into Colgate. So my son will be playing with him. So I got the chance to sit with him the other night at dinner. So we were swapping all these Nike stories and what a legend he is. And to hear like, he's like, oh my gosh, you, you know, you know, so-and-so we have all these people in common. And then he talked about, you know, kind of his experience through, uh, you know, working with Vaccaro, like Vaccaro is one of his best friends. And and actually, um, a small world connection, my older son played with uh, Paul Westhead's grandson. So he and Paul Westhead are very good friends. And so, you know, we're texting back and forth with Paul Westhead's daughter, who's a good friend of mine. So it's fun. It's a very small world. <laughs> it's a very small world. And I want to ask you from your time at Nike, you were in global footwear, as you noted, what were some of your interactions with some of these athletes? Because really, to me, Nike was at the forefront of kind of involving the athletes, not just slapping their name on something. That's what was beautiful. There's the, what they call the product triad, design, development, and product marketing. And I was part of the group that was teaching, how do we come up with ideas? How do we collaborate? How do we communicate? How do we? And so one of the biggest ways you get great product is mining for insights. And so what they do really well is get to know the athlete and not just from the, you know, 
10,000 foot level, but really they go deep. And the one story that pops to mind was at the time, the head of Brand Jordan was uh, Dwayne Edwards, and he would come in and speak to the class, but he, he didn't design the original. Obviously, Tinker Hatfield designed the original Jordans, but he was later in the process, like when Carmelo Anthony was a big athlete, and he would, like, they have a, one that was based on a stealth fighter jet, and he got, like, security clearance. He got to go fly in the stealth fighter because that was the inspiration for the shoe, and you know, all the details, it's not just like, oh, yeah, yeah, I sit on the, you know, on the beach and I sketch a shoe and it's done. It's like, there's a lot of thought that goes into how do you come up with this design? What is interesting for the for the athlete? Because they've got to market it. And then obviously, you know, it's got to be functional too. So it's, it was fun to see things that they would have to go through the different design gates. It takes about 18 months from inspiration to see it in on the shelf. And it goes through iterations. And at any point, the shoe can be dropped. And then of course it has to hit minimums. So there's this whole process that it goes kind of like when you're going to have a bill that's got to pass, it's that same process. So it was really fun to be on the inside. Um, in fact, I'm going to Nike in the end of October to speak to the innovation team because one of my best friends is now heading up footwear innovation. And so it'll be fun to go back into the kitchen and which is now in the LeBron building. So yeah, that's really cool. That's great. You know, you assume it's all just uh on TV, it looks so simple. It's it's nice to hear that in reality, there is all this thought put on. It's not by accident that Nike is Nike. After Nike, you obtained your certification in life coaching, starting the hashtag Raising Athletes podcast, and now have written a book about your passion for working with parents of children and athletics. As noted, Raising Empowered Athletes is your first book. How did this book project come about? So as we've discussed, my, previous, my, my past being an athlete and then getting to Nike and working with pro athletes, and then you get pregnant. And at least in America, I don't know about in Canada, but I would assume it's probably a global thing now. Everybody hands what to expect when you're expecting. And it's your Bible. And you read it every page. And you're so proud of yourself because, you know, when it's a lima bean, you're like, oh, I'm doing the, per I'm going to be the perfect parent. It's so exciting. And then like four years later, you're standing on the sidelines like, kick and chase and you've got some idiot standing next to you saying wait you're not going to do this wreck thing are you you're going to do club right like we're going to sweden next summer like why are you wasting your time with this you have a personal coach now right i'm exaggerating a little okay that's not happening at four or five but it's happening very 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 young you know it's the opposite of what we experienced growing up and what happens is you start to get this FOMO. And again, even though I'd had that background, I knew what it took. I had been through the steps. I too was like, okay, where's the book? Where's where's the the guide? And then and now it's like it's a twenty billion dollar industry. It's larger than the NFL. So youth sports is this huge, you know, we we parents are suckers and we'll pay for anything that we think is gonna, you know, if somebody tells us our kid can go pro sign me up. How big of a check can I write is what's happened. So the journey to the book was really around my own experience, you know, now seeing it. And when I first started asked, uh, pitching it, I, the publishers all went, oh, well, you're trying to, you know, write a book about how to raise a pro athlete. I said, no, actually the opposite. And in fact, if you took out athlete and put in artist or put in equestrian or put in, you know, scientist, like it's about raising good people. And that's when Susie and I started the podcast four years ago, I, I could see that being like the seedlings. And so the interviews that I've had, I've used a lot of that, plus the coaching that I've done, plus the speaking I've done, plus my own parenting experience. Like, you know, it's not an academic treatise. It's really all of the my experience combined with 
everything that I've, you know, gone through with coaching and, and speaking to get to like, it's okay to say that this is nuts. And this is okay. And I have a lot of stories in there about parents. I don't think anybody sets out to screw up their kid that we're all trying to do the best with what we have from where we are. But if we can take a moment to like check ourselves in the mirror and be like, yeah, this probably isn't healthy. We can, you know, we can do better. And when we do better, then our kids benefit. So that's my hope in this book is that it allows the parents to see the craziness and, and wow, this isn't normal that I'm chasing my son up and down the soccer field while he's trying to run, yelling and screaming at him the entire time. You know, he just needs to go play. <laughs> Such a great analogy. What to expect when you're expecting. Yeah, we, we had that book yeah. too. Okay, to apply it to sports and life is just amazing. Your book provides solutions for every youth sports situation with the goal of helping parents raise strong athletes while also nurturing, as you note, strong human beings. Now, Kristen, I'm a parent. I am also a coach. My wife, Vicki, is a team manager. I think your book resonates on all those different levels because today's youth sports experience provokes countless questions, and I'd like to address a few of them, if I may. Should kids specialize in a particular sport, and if so, at what age? The best athletes played multiple sports. Why? Because you use different muscles, you use different visioning, you you move your body in different ways. It allows your your world kind of expands. And when you start by just focusing on one thing and then you add the repetition, the repetition to, you know, wow, we're doing sports 13 months a year, you know, oh, you know, club ends on Friday and on Monday is high school tryouts. Like they're literally never getting a break. It's bad on the body. It's bad on the mind. It's bad on their excitement about doing it. You know, the professionalization of youth sports has come down so far that, you know, in middle school, these kids are getting burned out because they don't get, they don't have an option. So when I'm talking about kids from five to really probably 13, 14, the start of high school, ideally, I say play as many sports as you can. And I get it. It's hard, you know, as a parent, it's hard to be, and you got multiple kids and you got multiple teams, but really it's about allowing them to sample. Like, just like we sample in life, not all of us got a degree in college and went on and only did that thing the rest of our lives. They too are sampling. And my rule is if you sign up for the season, you finish the season. Barring any, you know, if there's any abuse, of course you're out. But in a normal season, you sign up for T-ball, you finish the T-ball season. You don't like it? Okay, let's pick something else. So we get to try and see what, what your kid gravitates towards. What's fun, like I coach little nine and 10 year old girls and in a group of 15, you can see the ones that are like hungry every week. They come in, they're there early, they're bouncing in again, they're asking for feedback, you know, and you can see the ones that clearly mom signed them up and they really would rather just be doing a TikTok dance at home, right? And, and that's fine, right? Like I still think it's a very worthwhile venture. Like they don't know. And you don't know until you try. So allow them to experience the, the different sports. And then as you start to get older, you start to see, wow, you know, maybe my kid isn't that competitive. Like, but keeping them active, 70%, over 70% of kids are dropping out of sports altogether by 13 because they're not having fun. We've taken all the fun out of it. We've put in all these rules. We've forced them to play with the coach and play it in, you know, you're not getting playing time. And it's all about this. It's not just go kick the ball and, and be curious. And, you know, like uh, some of the best basketball, Sabrina Ionescu, who 
played for Oregon, who's now one of the best players, if not the best player in the WNBA. She had two older brothers. Her parents worked seven days a week. She went across the street in the park and played with men, you know, and she was like, it was just fun. And that's what we're starting to lose out on with this next generation where the fun gets sucked out really early because you got to win. You got to be on the top team. You got to be on the ones team. You can't be on a twos team because heaven forbid, that makes me, the parent, look bad. And P.S. parents, this isn't about you. This is not about you. And that's one of the biggest things we need to check our own ego at the door and say, what do you want to do? And what are the options that that make you interested and, and why? And if it's not competitive, there's a million things to do that are, it's not about winning the trophy, right? Like go surfing and go, you know, biking and hiking. And we just want you to be active because what we know are active from, if you've been active up to 23, you're less likely to have depression. You're less likely to have anxiety. You're more likely to be able to handle, not if, but when adversity hits in life. This is about how we do life. And I think the most important lessons our kids are going to learn on the sports field or diamond or swimming pool are not about the wins. They're going to be about, oh, I learned how to you know, be a better teammate. I learned how to be positive and encouraging. I learned how to deal with a coach that didn't you know, support me. Now I have a boss that doesn't support me. Oh gosh, I I see a correlation, and now I can now I can cope with that, right? Life skills. Now, along with variety sports, I want to ask you about seasonality. Should kids be playing and practicing a particular sport all year, or like our food, should they eat it when it's in season? Get the variety of eating all kinds of different foods, or in this case, mixing it up by playing other seasonal sports. And absolutely, and of course, you know, people are going to say that's not right, but. What happens by, you know, by high school, so by 15, 16, then they do have to spend a lot of time doing it. But actually here in Buffalo, one of my son's best friends played baseball, basketball, and volleyball all through high school, never played travel baseball because he didn't have time. He played one season travel baseball and went to a junior college here for a year, just got drafted by by the Rangers, the Texas Rangers, right? So there is a certain level of athleticism that if your kid has the athleticism, a coach, you know, parents are very, it's interesting when you walk into a gym and they're really worried about the score and, oh, they're, my kid's not getting enough points and they're not winning. And coaches see beyond the scoring. They're looking for how do they move? How do they respond in the moment? How do they read and react? My middle son, Parker, is now going to play basketball at Colgate. It was so interesting talking to a couple of the coaches that recruited him. And they said, we're not really worried about the whether he puts the ball in the basket or not. I'm like, oh, so what are you looking for? He goes, there are things that he does that I can't teach. So there are certain intangibles that, that are about IQ, about the, you know, and, and that comes back to passion. And if your kid has a lot of passion, then they're going to be curious and they're probably going to be watching video and they're going to probably be, you know, they're going to be driving the process. Versus, well, you've got to go get a hitting coach. You've got to go get a shooting coach. You've got to, if we're shoving everything down their throat, there's the red flag. If they're pulling themselves and going, gosh, you know, what else can I do? And how else can I learn? And who can I talk to? And who can be my mentor? That's a very good sign. If you're enjoying this Toronto Legends interview with Kirsten Jones, please check out the more than 150 additional episodes available anytime. We got Larry Wilcox from Chips. Paul Reiser from Mad About You and Stranger Things, Rudy Sarzo from Quiet Riot, and the coach himself, Jack Armstrong. How they did it directly from the Toronto Legends themselves. All episodes available 24-7, 365, 
wherever you get your podcasts. Well, there is a lot of pressure out there that if you ain't practicing, you're falling behind, i.e. when you're sitting around not practicing, somebody out there is practicing and getting ahead of you. How do you deal with that pressure? Oh, it's awful. And it's true. And I remember actually saying that to myself as a kid. And that was always what drove me. But again, if it's not intrinsically driven, that you also have to have sleep is such a huge superpower. And I've talked about this a lot on my podcast and in the book, I touch on it, which is, you know, our kids should be getting, teenagers should be getting, you know, nine to 10 to 11 hours of sleep a night. And what we're seeing now is like, I know with hockey, when we were living here in Buffalo, kids were getting on the ice at midnight, right? Like, and then getting up and going to school the next day. Like, you can't possibly be functioning well if you're, you're not sleeping well. And then obviously hydrating, you know, they're way under hydrated and then they're not eating well. So that's like the perfect storm. And, and you've got teenage angst in general to deal with. So if you're adding, you know, Parenting is hard enough. And then you add a really tired, crotchety, undernourished, sleep-deprived teen to it. It's a recipe for disaster. And then we wonder why, you know, things aren't going well. Kirsten, here's a good one for you. Should there be a time or period of the year with no sports? Wouldn't that be wonderful? Yes, it would be wonderful. And I know it's not going to happen. And people are like, well, you know, you're live because there are parents. And I think you know, whatever, one to two to 5%, maybe of parents that are like, think I'm nuts and I don't care. And they're raising the next Todd Marinovich or, you know, they, that more is better. And, and that there are going to be those parents and they're going to be ones, but you also then usually follow up on the story. And there was a kid that got, was like the number one, you know, on the cover of SI and all of this. And, you know, three years later, he's now transferred three times and he's falling off. So it's, it's not about short-term gains. It's about long-term gains, right? So we have, maybe you have a short-term loss where, okay, as a family, we're going to go camping this summer. We're going to miss that one tournament. So I encourage parents to have, use your values of, we only get 18 summers with each child, right? So you don't get those back. And while you may think that that whatever tournament is the most important thing for my kid, if they're good enough, the cream will rise to the top. The coaches will find them. Remember Bobby Hurley, when he was here at, at UB, he said, I'll go find a kid in the middle of the field, you know, like Kansas wheat field if I have to, right? Good talent, you'll find it. You know, and, the, and they may want to be there, which is great, but that's where the parenting comes in. And you have to say, I remember dra- dragging mine, kicking and streaming from Las Vegas. He'd been there one week. I'm like, no, we're going to Jackson Hole. We're going whitewater rafting because I only have three more summers with you. And, you know, now he looks back on it and he goes, did I really do that? He doesn't even remember, right? And the answer is yes. But do you remember being on that raft? Yes, I do. And that's what, you know, again, the long-term play is 0.001% of our kids are going to be playing pro, right? Less than 7%, probably closer now post-COVID or less than 5% or even going to be playing in college. So what are our goals? And that's what I'd like to encourage parents is to to look at it as a, if you can look, when you look back on something and you have perspective, you can really go, oh, wow, I thought I was going for X, but I actually got Y. And I think a lot of us are hoping for the D1 scholarship or whatever, the pro, but what we're going to get out of it is, you know, at some point, everybody has to pivot. I mean, even LeBron James is at that fulcrum where it's going to change. Now, Kirsten, we as parents think our kids actually want to hear what we think, but you recommend we do not give feedback, but rather speak only six words. What are those six words? 
the only words our kids need to hear us say are after a game are, I love to watch you play. I love to watch you play. And if you would like to discuss the game, wait a day and then ask and say, you know, what do you think? What do you think about yesterday's game? You want to talk about it? You may get a, nah, I'm good. (laughs) Or you may get a, hey, yeah, what did you think about this or that? But take the emotion out of it. And the car ride home is not the time to start peppering them. And it's hard because we, we're we all excited and we're all, we know the answer and the coach should have played you more or we want to give our own commentary. And they don't really need that. In fact, they they don't, they definitely don't need that. And they just want empathy. I mean, in half the time, it's like, well, can we stop and get ice cream? Like they've already forgotten about it, but we're still hanging on to it. No, 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 no. Oh, but I want to talk about the third, you know, oh, mom, you know, you know, I'm going to go play. Can I go play with my friend? Like, they're done. They've moved on and we need to move on too. And that's kind of, I hope what the message comes across in the book is the more grounded we can be, the more, I think I love the analogy of a tree and the roots grow deeper and deeper so that when the wind blows, when the hurricane comes, when the blizzard hits, you have a moment to pause and reflect because they're not listening to what we say, but they're a hundred percent watching what we do and how we choose to respond to it. And when we respond in a, huh, that's too bad. What are you going to do about that? What would, what, would you like to brainstorm some ideas about why you didn't play? Sure. You want, you know, what do you think you want to do? Maybe you want to go talk to the coach? Yeah. No, not parent talk to the coach. The kid go talk to the coach. Go ask for feedback. Go ask for what am I missing? Go ask for tools to help me get better. And that's what they're going to need to do is with their teachers. That's what they're going to need to do with their professors. That's what they're going to need to do with their bosses. So you're actually, you know, hamstringing them if you don't give them those tools now. And it's a gift that when they're with you, you can you can be the guide from the side. Don't jump in the hole with them. Well, as you know, their life skills. Don't be a helicopter parent or up here in Canada. Don't be a snowplow parent. You hit on a really hot button, which is playing time. Kirsten, what should a parent do when their kid is not getting the playing time they think they deserve? So playing time is really about, if you talk to any coach with their, worth their salt at all, they will say, I'm not deciding in the moment who plays. I'm seeing who shows up at practice. I'm seeing who's consistent, who's early, who's doing the work. Yes, talent becomes a factor, but there are decisions that are being made. In, in theory, they should be made in the months or weeks leading up to them getting playing time. So there is a reason. And hopefully, you know, and this is, again, I want the coaches to read this book too, because again, we all, when we know better, we do better. And we may get it set in our mind as a coach, like, oh, well, that kid has more talent than that kid. So I'm going to let that kid play until they mess up. Instead of thinking about how can I make, I think the best coaches, and when I think of that, I think of John Wooden, like, elevated every player, regardless of whether you were the number 10 guy on the roster or the number one guy on the roster. His job was to make everybody better. And in fact, when um, Susie Walton tells a story when the number two center was coming into UCLA and, and he said, well, why would I come here? I have to play behind Bill Walton. And he goes, no, you get a practice against Bill Walton every day. Imagine how good you're gonna get when you're playing against the best players. High tides raise all boats. So again, instead of helicoptering in and solving it, complaining about it, whatever, empower them to say, you know, what do I have control over and how can I get better? 
And like this year, my daughter is, she's not playing the high school team, but she said, I'm going to take this season because I want to get better for club. And so you're in control of that. She's got to go play beach. She's got to work out. Like she's driving it. If it's me driving it, it's not going to happen. I, on that note, I am going to selfishly take advantage of your expertise. And I pray that my kid is not listening to this, but my 16 year old daughter used to play a lot of sports, but as of today, she is playing none. How do I get this kid off of the Instagram, off the TikTok that I either rightly or wrongly believe is, is flattening out her enthusiasm to just do it? A hundred percent. It most definitely is. And in fact, it's become, you know, we're better when we're creating, we humans. And so I, I had a similar instant with my son where he was only consuming YouTube videos. And I said, you can be on YouTube if you create a video. And if you're creating a video, then he has to think about what am I posting and what do I look like? And I don't care if you have two two people viewing the, the YouTube, but create something. So I would encourage her to figure out, and the exercise I do with clients is go back to your five-year-old self. What If you could do anything all day, what would you do? And usually something pops to mind, you know, five, six, seven years old. Oh, when I was seven, I loved drawing. Okay, so how often do you draw now? Well, I don't. Okay, so let's figure out, you know, a venue for you to do that. And say my son started creating videos. Then he got so embarrassed, they kind of blew up. They were like started to go viral. I bet he was embarrassed that so many people, because he was like pouring milk on himself and doing silly things. So he shut it down. But now flash forward five years, he's 19. He's making music on SoundCloud and he's doing beats. And But he like we all need to be creating something. So what is it that you're, you're interested in and curious about? And, I, and then also physically, she needs to be moving. So honey, you want to be on your Instagram? You're going to earn, I don't know how you want to position it, but that's a, that's a luxury. That's not something we need. What we need is you to be engaged. We need you. I want to hear what happened today at the, at the dinner table. And it can't just be, I, you know, I watched the TikTok video. It's got to be, there was something that I tried today and failed at. Let's try something new. And, you know, that was always my dinner table conversation was, give me your roses and your thorns. What are the things that went really well? Oh, I flunked the test. Ooh, ouch. What happened? Well, I didn't study for it because I was up till midnight. Oh, so what are you going to do differently to get a different outcome? And, you know, the kids will say, oh, well, it wasn't my fault or this or that. No, we've got to start allowing them to own the process. And the earlier we do that, the better they're going to be equipped to, to, you know, become adults, to do this adulting thing. <laughs> I love that. Create, don't just consume. Now, of course, history is full of athlete-parent combos for better or for worse. So I'm going to throw some of these out there to you for your commentary. Let's start with the Woods family. Tiger Woods is the most famous golfer in the world, also famously a Nike athlete, and his late father Earl might have been the most famous athlete's dad. Now, while Tiger's mom, Coltida, basically was supportive but stayed in the background, Earl worked on Tiger relentlessly and, in fact, wrote a book called Raising Kids a Character, Lessons from Tiger Woods' Dad. But what's interesting is that the desire for Tiger to play golf apparently came from Tiger, not from Earl. Tiger wanted to hit golf balls. Tiger wanted to be out there all day long. It wasn't his dad pushing golf on him, but rather that Earl exposed Tiger to it and lit the fire in Tiger Woods that so famously became his passion. Kirsten, anything to draw from the story of Earl Woods as a sports parent? Yes, I write about that in the book. Is I think those were some of the, you know, right late 70s, early 80s, like there was a, a combination of things that were happening. 
double the number of women were going back into the workforce in the in the 50s and 60s 24 percent in the, in america here in north america people were women were working outside the home it doubled by the 70s and 80s so now you have both parents outside of the house working you have no child left behind where oh our work our kids aren't as smart we're falling behind academically we need to catch up you have adam walsh gets abducted and 38 million people tune into again back in the day when you couldn't dvr it to watch what happened with Adam Walsh. So now it's not safe to let our kid go play in the street. So that combined with 1979, ESPN comes online. So now I can watch sports 24-7. I can see Tiger Woods being developed. And we hear about the 10,000-hour rule. And ooh, if I spend 10,000 hours you know, molding my clay, I too can create a Tiger Woods. So there's a piece in there all great athletes have. And that's that intrinsic drive. You know, I, I would argue that that Earl knew that at two and three, because, you know, most five and six year olds, you ask them what they want to do tomorrow and they'll say, you know, they don't know. They don't even know what they want for dinner. But yes, he he laid out the platform. He set the table for him. And that's what great parents do is they give them the opportunity to, to pick from the table and the buffet. And if a kid gravitates towards one thing, that's wonderful. What you have to be aware of, though, and I mentioned this in the story of uh, the book of there's a kid who was the same thing and actually ironically golf. And I met the dad um, at a basketball game when he was like leaning so far back. And I was like, why are you not jumping up and down like the rest of us? And he said, oh, fifth child. <laughs> I said, what? Wait, what do you mean? And he said, well, my first child was a golfer. We did all of that. We went to the and he was good. And everybody told me he was good. And I was excited because he was good. And we would go to the driving range every day. And then we're on the junior tour. We're schlepping the four other kids with us to every PL, you know, junior event. And he goes, and then my son, he he wins the lottery. He gets the full ride scholarship to Stanford to play golf. We are like, woohoo. We are so happy. A couple months before he's supposed to go to Stanford, he says, he comes to my wife and I and he says, I'm not going to Stanford and I'm not playing golf again. You know, and I don't think that's bad parenting. I think that's he was doing what his kid was directing him to do, but that's where I come back to what are your family values because you have to keep that in mind as you go through the journey. It could have turned out like the next tiger. He could have pursued it and moved on. It happens, but there's also this moment where, again, the kid's like, this has been a full-time job for me for the last 15 years. I just want to go to college and be a student. I don't want to have this burden. So, balance. There's some parents that will say, hogwash, I'm going to, you know, pursue the, the golf all the way as far as we can get it because this is such a great opportunity. I mean, Andre Agassi's dad said, if I had to do it all over again, I said, no, I wouldn't make him play tennis. I'd make him play golf. He can play a lot longer and make a lot more money. I got another great combo for you. LeBron James and Bronny. Now, at 18 years old, Bronny is a freshman at USC who gained over 1 million Instagram followers on the very first day that his father, LeBron, allowed him to have an account. He actually signed NIL, or name image likeness deals, with Nike and Beats by Dre when he was still in high school. And the sky has been the limit for Bronny, both on and off the court, literally since the day he was born. Kirsten, is Bronny James destined for greatness or doomed to be up against the ridiculously high expectations set by his famous father, LeBron? You know, I followed LeBron. So I was at Nike when they signed him at 18. And he's one of the exceptions of he married the high school sweetheart. They're still married. They have three kids. They're very family focused. He's given back a ton. 
is he under the limelight? Absolutely. And and who knows? He just had this health issue, right? And collapsed on the floor. And, you know, I don't know what, what the outcome of that will be. But the pressure, I mean, I guess maybe good news for him is he's used to it because he's grown up with it. But, you know, Michael Jordan also had three kids and none of them, I mean, one, you know, kind of played a little bit, but there's a lot of pressure. Steve Kerr, I, I loved his quote. His son, middle son was playing, you know, eight, whatever, six, six, seven, eight was playing soccer. It was in the middle of the field, lying on his back, picking daisies. And he said, I went out there and I said, hey, buddy, you want to go get some ice cream? And he's like, yeah. And I think the higher you get to that pinnacle, you realize the harder it is to get there. And ultimately, if you ask LeBron, I would assume he'd say, I want my kid to be happy. So I do think it feels like it's Bronny's wish. We'll see. And, you know, again, USC is jumping up and down because their ticket sales just went through the roof, of course. And all of LA, all of Hollywood's going to show up like they do to a Lakers Lakers game. So it's that could be great for the business side of it. I mean, I'm more curious about the personal side of it. And, and what if Bronny's doctors say, no, you can't ever play again? Like, wow, what a parenting shift that will be, right? Because, you know, are you there for the dollars? No, you're there to see your kid hopefully get to do something he loves and enjoys. And, and of course, I'm, you know, the, he said flat out, I really would love to stay in the league long enough to play with my son. So I know that's his goal. And, he, you know, the one year and done is what he'll probably do. But it's a long journey. Well, that'll be amazing if the outcome of that story is LeBron and Bronny sharing the court together. I got one more family to ask you about, the Ball family. LeVar Ball is the father of three professional basketball players, Lonzo, Leangelo, and Lamelo. Now, LeVar is pretty outrageous, and none other than the aforementioned NBA championship player and coach Steve Kerr has called LeVar Ball the Kardashian of the NBA. Although often praised for raising three high-level basketball players and for his entertaining personality, LeVar Ball's parenting style has not always been viewed positively. Canada's own, the Globe and Mail, has criticized LeVar for trying to get rich off his kids and labeling him as an addict for attention, while USA Today's Nancy Armour has simply called him the worst sports parent ever. Kirsten, is LeVar Ball the worst sports parent ever? I'm afraid I have to side with her. It seems like it's working out pretty well for them, and they all, I mean... What you kind of thought would happen would be they would they would kind of bust and and then one did have to go play in Estonia or somewhere and then he came back and like they've they've managed to weather the storm and I think they had their own brand and they were going to start their own league and like all of this but and maybe they are that point zero 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 one percent that can do that but I would hate for parents to use that as a model because again so so few are going to be able to to replicate that and. Ultimately, again, when we think about the long ride, the long road, do you want to be, you know, estranged from your kid because you use them as a tool for your own, again, ego? Or do you want to, are you trying to raise a good human that if those are his passions and you're supporting him, that will, that will be an outcome? Yet to be seen how that whole story. Yeah, we'll see how that chapter gets written for, for a lot of these kids that are going through that right now. You know, there's now... 12-year-old soccer players that are playing on the national team. And I don't know, like, I, again, I can't say like, maybe, maybe it's the right thing, but you know, when you're playing with kids that women that are 22 years old and you know, that are living in a completely different life, is it healthy? Is it normal? Is it, you know? 
Got to look at the big picture. Now, Christian, this being the Toronto Legends podcast, I have to ask about any sports or life experiences you'd like to share from being in Toronto or Canada. Well, so we lived here in in, in Buffalo for three years. And uh, my daughter at the time, Justin Bieber, was all the rage. And he was playing in Toronto. So that was one of the pilgrimages we took um, to go up there. And then I also ran Nike has a half marathon that runs by the airport. So I went up and ran that. It was unfortunately pouring rain the whole time. Um, it was, but it was so fun to, we took the boat over and ran around the island. And um, that was an amazing experience. And it's so beautiful. I mean, honestly, every Canadian I met, like they're so kind and so welcoming. And as even the Buffalonians admit, Canada side of Niagara Falls is so much prettier than the American side. <laughs> so nice to have you acknowledge that. We're all very uh, sensitive about that here. And we it is true. We've always said our side's a little nicer. But it is. as you note, I'm glad we were able to live up to our uh, worldwide reputation as being uh, overly polite. Again, Kirsten, I want to give you congratulations on your book, Raising Empowered Athletes, A Youth Sports Parenting Guide for Raising Happy, Brave, and Resilient Kids. Is there any particular place you want people to go to purchase it? So you can find them anywhere books are sold, but you can also go to my website, um, kirstenjonesinc.com to find out more about me and where I'll be speaking, um, to check out my podcast if you're a sports parent trying to figure this out. You know, we're having lots of guests and athletes and parents and, you know, any, anybody who's got a, a point of view to help us get better at doing this. Parenting is hard and we, we need help. And it's a team, it's a team sport. So I think we should be doing it together. <laughs> Very well said. KirstenJonesInc.com is where you go. I want to thank you for your time today. It was great to meet you. And I learned a lot from today. I can't wait to start applying it. And I want to wish you continued success with your book tour and beyond. Thank you. I mean, maybe one last note, if you can follow me on Instagram too, I'm definitely building a big following there. Kirsten Jones Coach um, and the podcast is on there. It's Raising Athletes. Um, so follow us there and, and tune in and I hope to meet you along the way. Thanks Excellent. for having me. It was my pleasure. And to the listeners, on behalf of Kirsten Jones, I am Andrew Applebaum saying thanks for listening to this episode of the Toronto Legends Podcast. The Podcast Super Friends is a monthly meeting of five podcast producers. Hi, I'm Catherine O'Brien from Branch Out Programs in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. I'm John Gay from Jagged Detroit Podcasts. I'm Matt Kundle from the Sound Off Podcast Network. I'm David Yes from Pod 617, the Boston Podcast Network. And I'm Johnny Peterson from Straight Up Podcasts. Together, they form the Podcast Super Friends, an alliance of podcast masterminds sharing best practices, insights, and discussions to help make you a better podcaster. Follow or subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or at soundoff.network. I'm Andrea Askowitz. And I'm Allison Langer. And we are the hosts of Writing Class Radio, a podcast, but we are so much more. We have writing classes. So if you are looking for live online classes where you can join a community, write to a prompt, get feedback, and get better, check out all our classes at writingclassradio.com. 
and listen to our podcast wherever you get your podcasts and at writingclassradio.com.